Hi, you're listening to Pod Academy. Filipino workers can be found in hundreds of countries around the world. Hundreds of countries. And this is really surprising and kind of astounding to think that this archipelago in the middle of the Pacific can actually produce so many people who leave for so many destinations around the world. So daily, um, nearly 5,000 people, that's the latest count, are leaving the Philippines to go everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean everywhere. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Washington, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Dr. Robin Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is an associate professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Davis. We will discuss her new book, Migrants for Export, How the Philippine State Brokers Labor to the World, which was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2010. So, Robin Rodriguez, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for the invitation, Chris. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your history, how you came to write about labor brokerage. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. Uh, I spent Mm -hmm. most of my growing up in Union City, California, which really has a sizable Filipino immigrant population. For many Filipinos in the United States, Union City, California is definitely in our constellation of key site for Filipino settlement. And so I grew up in a place where literally the whole block was Filipino immigrants. My schools from kindergarten to high school had a good number. I mean, I I can't even tell you uh, the actual figure. It felt as if if we were the majority, Mm. certainly, if it was not in fact the majority. And really, I think my growing up in university Uh, shaped a lot of what would eventually become my research questions and what would constitute the kind of the core of my political activism, because so much of my academic work emerges from my political work as an immigrant Mm -hmm. rights advocate. So when I think and talk about my work, I am talking both about kind of my scholarly work, but also about my activism. I just recall in high school, One of the big issues in the 80s was the proliferation of gangs and gang violence, particularly amongst Filipino Americans. And I started getting really involved with different community-based projects that were responding to gang violence that were initiated by the Filipinos for Affirmative Action based in Oakland, which is now actually called the Filipino Advocates for Justice, and got involved in different dialogues, kind of facilitating um, dialogues that they organized to facilitate better community communication between the youth and their parents, dialogues between the police and the youth and parents, and just a number of different activities. But I think that really is where um, my interest in ethics studies began, and that carried through into my undergraduate career. I eventually attended the University of California at Santa Barbara, where there was an Asian American studies program. And that's really where I started to encounter ethnic studies as a student and to really think very seriously about the possibility of being an Asian American scholar. And along the way, I kept continuing organizing work around um, immigrant issues. You know, a lot of what we also did as student activists was to take Asian American studies into our own hands and not necessarily wait to take courses, but to actually take uh, what we were learning and to educate our peers with what we were learning in the classroom, but also doing the work, kind of creating our own curriculums. I think that's really where a lot of my work as a scholar and teacher began. That work helped shape um, what would eventually become the questions that 
I would then answer in my book, in large part because I continue to do activist uh, or immigrant organizing work. Mm. I entered graduate school in 1996 um, in uh, the Department of Sociology at UC Berkeley, and I continued to be very involved in different social justice work and was really taking a keen interest in what was happening with Philippine migration. Because 1996, in fact, was just a year actually after the hanging of a Filipino domestic worker by the Singaporean government. Many Filipinos had been falsely accused. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of elements to her, her conviction. She was convicted of murder. But there are a lot of elements of her case that seemed really off. Mm. And Filipino. This is a flora contemplation. Yes, flora contemplation. And so uh, a lot of Filipinos were actually concerned that she might have been set up by somebody. Mm. She had been accused of killing another Filipino domestic worker and actually the child that that woman uh, was taking care of. But there was just too much about the case that was very suspicious. And so Filipinos in the Philippines, Filipino migrants around the world staged mass protests demanding that the Philippine government intervene, demanding that the Philippine government launch an, an official inquiry, not just even launch the inquiry, but also use diplomatic pressure to get the Singaporean government to reopen the case. Actually, the protests in support of Flor Contemplacion rivaled the people power movement that brought down the Marcos dictatorship. But what was different about this is it was no longer simply confined to the Philippines, but in fact was a global movement. And the movement behind it was what became the Alliance Migrante International. I ended up in the summer of 1997 going to the Philippines and, and meeting with migrante activists. Actually, I wasn't entirely sure that I was going to study migration. Some of my experiences there made me realize that migration really had to be my focus mm. uh, because it's impossible. It's impossible to ignore migration when you're in the Philippines. You know, it's everywhere. It's the forms you fill out right before you land in the Ninoy Aquino International Airport. The disembarkation card, it's right there when you uh, pass through immigration. There's a separate line for overseas Filipino workers. There's the people who you stand beside at the baggage claim who are lugging huge boxes off of the mm. baggage carousel. It's just there confronting you immediately. And I guess I just couldn't ignore it. So you do begin the book talking about labor brokerage, which is a very interesting term. You talk about it as both a globalization strategy and one that helps characterize the Philippine state in some ways. Uh, so can you tell the audience a bit about what labor brokerage is and how you see it uh, helping us understand Asian America or globalization in general? Sure. First of all, I think just to back up a bit, uh, especially because I'm imagining many of your listeners are likely to be based in the United States. And so therefore, if they understand immigration, they're understanding it mainly to the U.S. You know, when we step outside of the United United States, going even to Canada, just north of us, migration starts to look much, much different. In the Canadian context, for instance, there's a huge population of live-in caregivers, and certainly a great majority of them are, are migrants from the Philippines. The Canadian government had introduced this policy to try to bring in low-wage caregivers to provide the care of children and elderly for Canadian families. So that's a law that's specific 
to Canada, of course. But going even further, you kind of, you know, if, if we kind of imagine ourselves in Google Maps and we're starting mm. from the U.S. and we're kind of panning out, panning out, and we start to look, you know, what we find is that the Filipino is, in fact, a truly global labor force. Filipino workers can be found in hundreds of countries around the world. Hundreds of countries. And this is really surprising and kind of astounding, I think, to liter- to, to listeners to kind of think that this archipelago in the middle of the, the Pacific can actually produce so many people who leave for so many destinations around the world. So daily, um, nearly 5,000 people, that's the latest count, are wow. leaving the Philippines on a daily basis to go everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean everywhere. Literally, you, know, you find Filipinos in Africa. I've met them in South Africa. You find them in Europe. I've met them in Spain, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, mm. in Germany, in the streets of Hong Kong, in mm. streets of Taipei and Taiwan. You find them in Korea, Japan, and they're all over the Middle East, places like Saudi Arabia, in Syria, in Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates. The Philippines really is unrivaled in this regard. You don't have the same global scope and scale of migration uh, coming from other places. Mexico certainly produces quite a number of migrants. Those migrants primarily come to a single de- destination. Mm. Not true for the Philippines. Now, in terms of even just remittance earnings, the Philippines counts as one of the world's top remittance earning countries in the world. Perhaps that's not surprising, given mm. kind of the global scope and scale of a migration. So then what explains it? And and so the answer for me is this uh, the state, or what I call the labor brokerage state. The labor brokerage state, um, in a nutshell, is the transnational apparatus of institutions that help facilitate the out-migration of Filipino workers. And there are agencies based in the Philippines, um, but it's also the Philippines network of consular and embassy offices all around the world that actually play a role of kind of helping in marketing and, you know, facilitating bilateral agreements with, with host countries to help facilitate migration. Now, why does it do it? And, and I guess that's really where the question to this, this issue of how this connects to processes of globalization comes in. Why it does it, I suggest, is that this is really one of uh, many, but in the Philippine case, it's sort of the dominant neoliberal strategy. That is, it's a strategy by which the Philippine state attempts to contain the social dislocations that are endemic to neoliberal globalization. And, you know, for lay listeners who aren't, you know, particularly familiar with Asian American scholarship or or the scholarship on globalization, neoliberalism refers to an economic philosophy that basically says states really ought not be in the business of of providing social services or regulating economic Mm. life. Because really, corporations firms, business, entrepreneurs do that much better. 
And we see it in the United States. We don't often call it neoliberal, but we call it welfare reform. We call it people pulling themselves up from their bootstraps. That's how neoliberalism manifests itself in the United States. Neoliberalism in other places uh, manifests itself similarly, and that causes tremendous dislocation for especially uh, formerly colonized um, countries in the global south, Mm. sites like the Philippines. So already you have tremendous inequality, and that inequality gets exacerbated by neoliberal um, economic reforms that basically take away any social safety nets that might have been in existence Mm -hmm. and and really gives full reign over to corporations, both national and um, global, in, in setting the agenda for the economy. So, you know, for me, labor brokerage becomes this mechanism for addressing these inequalities. Because, you know, what what neoliberalism does is says, look, you need to, in the case of the Philippines, liberalize or make more flexible your labor policy. Firms aren't going to kind want to come into the Philippines to invest if they feel like they've got to pay people too much. Mm-hmm. You need to be more flexible about what the minimum wage is. You need to be more flexible about even the work day and, and, and how long you intend to employ workers. This uh, the art, so the art and neoliberal argument goes, would make then the Philippines much more enticing to foreign investors, and foreign investors. So the logic goes are, are what the Philippines needs to develop. But of course, what does that mean for Filipinos? It means that they are are underemployed because they have to work as contract workers already in the Philippines. It means they're underpaid; they're not being paid a living wage, and that feeds into um, social unrest. And there's the labor movement in the Philippines has been um, growing its ranks. Progressive movements in the Philippines have been growing their ranks and really attempting to put uh, the brakes on this, on these sorts of policies. State is not very, it's not as if it hides this agenda. It's quite clear, mm-hmm. even in its own articulations of, of labor, the labor export policy. That is that they do see um, labor export as providing the jobs to people in the Philippines that they don't wouldn't ordinarily have. It provides them a source of income that they cannot enjoy in the Philippines, and it can therefore curb all sorts of social unrest. Mm. And so, you know, in many ways, I think of new, uh, of new labor brokerage less as an economic strategy, even as it provides this source of foreign exchange to the Philippine state, and perhaps as more of a neoliberal mode of governmentality, a way of managing the Philippine population alongside of other kinds of neoliberal interventions. Yeah, you use the word government governmentality, I think, throughout the text to kind of describe that. Uh, one of the things I really liked about this book is that you provide a history of this uh, so that we kind of see this out-migration beyond the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you begin with U.S. colonialism in the Philippines and how that helped play a role in the emergence uh, of the labor brokerage states. I track the emergence of labor brokerage to the U.S. colonial labor system. I often, you know, as I talk about it beyond the scope of the book, when I talk about my work, I I say that really labor brokerage wasn't invented by Marcos, although we typically think about the labor export policy of Marcos as being kind of the moment 
when you see the institutionalization of the act of export of Filipino workers. But really, labor brokerage is an invention of uh, the, the U.S. colonial labor system. And in the book, I describe that um, system as uh, where we can locate the institutional precursors for labor brokerage. But it's really more than just the, the institutional precursors for it, but it really is the moment it, under a U.S. U.S. colonials of the Philippines is where you even see the the blueprint laid out for what becomes later this neo-colonial uh, Philippine economy and government. To understand this contemporary apparatus, you really do have to locate it in the colonial moment. But the connection to the U.S. empire in U.S. Uh, and, and U.S. global capital, you can continue to you see it even when you track where Filipino labor goes. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things I don't develop enough in the book, and that is why Philippine labor is so global is because U.S. capital is so mm-hmm. global. And I find instances of this over and over again in, in my research. For instance, Filipinos working in Brunei, and that's a case study that I cover in the book. Brunei mm-hmm. is a Southeast Asian country. Now, these Filipino workers were working for a garments factory. What market were these factories producing for? These were U.S. markets. These are Filipino mm. migrants working in Brunei producing for the Gap. Now, Filipinos in Iraq, for instance, Filipinos are in Iraq literally serving the U.S. US military. It's interesting to see it grow from Filipinos being exported as colonial subjects to the U.S. and then now being exported kind of abroad in this kind of global economy. I think it's fantastic the way you kind of developed that narrative. But specifically in the 1970s and 80s, when Marcos has signed Executive Order 797 and such things, uh, that's the, the labor brokerage state really starts to emerge, I think, for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you go into detail a bit about the actual like, structural adjustments and things that happened that helped this new context emerge? Marcos introduced this in the, mid, in the early 1970s, and, and this is a moment that's both specific to the Philippines, but really part of a, a global shift. And, and that is this real push on the part of um, multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund, or the IMF. Mind you, and this is also in the context of the Cold War. I think this is very crucial. Mm. One needs to understand that, you know, a lot of these developmental inter- initiatives that were pushed by these multilateral institutions was in the context of, of ensuring the containment of various countries or formerly colonized countries uh, to contain them from uh, what was perceived as the pernicious and, and dangerous spread of communism. Mm. And so the idea was that um, in places uh, within the United States' ambit, places like the Philippines, that these would be important sites to kind of showcase uh, the the benefits of capitalism, that the capitalist route um was the better route. And so amongst the different um, policy initiatives as part of this kind of broader Cold War project was to really encourage, and this is also, mind you, happening simultaneous to um, deindustrialization in uh, the United States. 
So now mm. firms in the U.S. now are partly in response to um, what was a growth in the labor movement kind of post-World War II that meant um, higher wages for American workers that cuts into uh, corporate profits. Now um, there's a real need to identify alternative sites for production, sites where there are cheaper workers. And this is all kind of coming together at a, at a particular um, historical moment. And it's at this time um, in, in places like the Philippines where countries are being encouraged to actually shift from what used to be what was called an import substitution industrialization. That is where, you know, national economies uh, that had been formally colonized were trying to produce domestically and to uh, substitute what they used to be importing with locally produced projects. You know, that was sort of in the wave of the early post-colonial period. Then they were now being encouraged to actually now shift to export-oriented industrialization. Mm. The idea was, no, foreign capital can actually help toward the project of industrialization fat along because um, they've got the knowledge and the expertise. Uh, they've been doing it in their respective countries. They can bring that technology over to you and kind of facilitate industrialization in a way that your import-oriented industrialization can't. Hmm. So, you know, there was this encouragement of this shift, which then led to the offshoring of production from places like the United States to places like the Philippines and its neighboring countries. And that created major trade imbalances. And of course, the, the, the multilateral institutions argued that this is just part of the transition from ex, you know import-oriented industrialization to export-oriented industrialization. These are some of the adjustments that one you know country needs to endure towards this greater goal of industrialization, capital kind of capitalist modernization. But it did lead to these kinds of imbalances. It did have major uh, impacts on the populations of these countries and, and, and those populations did react. And so the 1970s was also a time of the rise of student uh, radicalism in the Philippines as, mm. as, uh, as young people were responding to this uh, orientation and, and the ways in which it was further exacerbating inequalities in Philippine society. And it was against this backdrop then that the, that Marcos introduces this labor export policy. And as I say in the book, you know, this labor export policy isn't something he just kind of invents. It's not like he just comes up with it. He has these institutional kind of um, pieces uh, of it are already mm. kind of there, having been established under the colonial labor regime. It seems that Marcos kind of helps put in a lot of those institutions or he signs the executive orders. But uh, what's interesting, I think, uh, in your later chapters is how the Filipino nationalism and Filipino citizenship starts to change based on this uh, idea of heroic uh, migrant, heroic overseas worker. And that it, it's, it's interesting to me because it also recategorizes how women are seen as, as uh, not just kind of domestic or in the home, but also uh, out in the world and sending remittances back. Can you tell us a little bit about how that Filipino type or Filipino citizenship was also structured by this? Mm -hmm. So much of this is also gendered. I mean, I think I've talked a lot about mm -hmm. the labor piece and uh, the political economy piece. But yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, and this is where citizenship comes in. I haven't talked about citizenship very much. Um, so much of how labor brokerage works is it's about also capturing um, the, the hearts and minds, literally, of, of mm -hmm. Filipinos. It's about um, engaging them 
to imagine themselves in new ways, having them imagine them, themselves in their futures, imagining their kind of self-actualization as happening through migration, and that that, that mm. isn't some kind of betrayal of the country to imagine oneself leaving, but that's actually some, you know, kind of nationalist contribution. And of course, that imagining requires a reimagining too of gender and, and, and how women and men and femininity and masculinity are to be differently understood. And certainly for women in, in, in the Philippines, although, you know, this is the truth still, right? Um, not just in mm -hmm. the Philippines, but everywhere. And because patriarchal and heteronormative ideas continue to reign dominant, the idea is that, you know, women continue to be the most appropriate caretakers of their children, the most appropriate people to attend to their homes. But under this kind of uh, system of labor brokerage, there's a real kind of stretching of that idea and, and, and a reconfiguring of it that and the family should be imagined and can be imagined as a transnational one that women can and, and should care for their children by being employed, even as it also requires that they continue to sustain their children emotionally, transnationally. So there's all of this kind of work. And it ties to citizenship because it's we think about citizenship as not simply who is eligible to participate in a polity, although it is that, mm -hmm. but it's also about we think about belonging, who belongs to a place, and, you know, where is that place? There's a real way, there's a way in which uh, to be the Fili a Filipino is to be global and to think kind of globally. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't discussed really your, your methods that you use in the book, which are very interesting, I think. I did what's called an ethnography of the state. Mm -hmm. Now, typically when we think about ethnography, we typically think of the anthropologists who do ethnography as being, you know, these white dudes who go out to these far off remote places in the world to study mm -hmm. to study strange and unusual people and mm -hmm. truly you know ethnography was done and still done in some cases like this but some feminist scholars and other Marxist scholars have really seized on ethnography as a method that can serve liberatory kind of ends or that can help in elucidating structures of power by training the eye on major institutions of power as opposed to mm. racialized others. And so that's why I felt like it was a method that made sense to me, um, given my own commitment to doing research in the service of unmasking power and mm. locating and describing these sites of power for the purpose of unraveling power. So I did this ethnography of the state. It meant really going around, looking at how the different bureaucracies functioned, um, talking to functionaries of the bureaucracy, also talking to people as they were engaging with the bureaucracy. And it's an important uh, methodological tool. Mm. And I think it's actually an, a methodological tool that's most appropriate or amongst the tools that should be in the toolkit of, an, of Asian American students and scholars. I see our field as one that does come from these social justice movements and, and, and has a responsibility to continue to work towards those ends. That's one thing that kept occurring to me throughout this book, is especially since it was published uh, two or three years ago. Uh, I'm just curious how your activism since then uh, has kind of been informed by the research in this work or how 
activists nowadays working for uh, immigrant, especially like domestic worker rights in the U.S., how would they view this book? Like, what would, what would it have to kind of inform their political views? One of the things that I've done uh, with my co-former student, who is now an assistant professor in sociology at Portland University, Valerie Francisco, I mean, we mm. actually used this method, but qualitative methods, more broadly interview methods. And we actually, um, in collaboration with the Filipino Community Center in San Francisco, Francisco designed a participatory action research project to equip the caregivers who were going to the center for, and they had so, there were just so many cases that uh, they were bringing forward to to the center, um, cases of wage theft, cases of employer abuse, just de- debt peonage, a whole range of issues. And the center recognized that they needed to understand this, um, what was going on amongst this category of worker. And together we collaborated on, on designing and implementing a participatory action research project to get at what was going on. But more than that, to use research, because really, you know, qualitative research methods, particularly interview methods, use the same kinds of um, strategies that organizers do in organizing in social movements. To organize, one needs to uh, make contacts. To organize, one needs to identify issues in a community. Um, One needs to gain trust. And along the way, they formed uh, what is now Migrante uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. In fact, just over the weekend, um, it was really, really quite heartwarming and and inspiring because they elected their slate of officers and adopted a program of action. And I think that the research project did play uh, an important role, and they said as much in um, helping them get on their feet and and organize themselves. 